0: Section 21 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis. And Charles C. Bombow. Mysterious Disappearances, Part 11 The Burning in Place of the Drowning Trick. More than 20 years ago, Mary Halverson, a young Swede girl, had her home with Andrew Anderson, who kept a store at Nina, Wisconsin. Mary was a bright girl and continued to live with the Andersons nearly 10 years. The house where they lived was known throughout that region as the Haunted House. Strange traditions prevailed that a miner, who had come from the then wilds of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, had entered the place one night seeking refuge from the storm, and that he had never been seen alive afterward. It was alleged that when the miner was last seen, he had $18,000 in money. The occupants of the place died not long afterward, and it passed into the possession of the Andersons, with the mystery which had followed the miner's disappearance clinging to it. The Andersons were naturally curious to learn if the money he was supposed to have had was still secreted on the premises. The girl Mary was as much interested as the family in the search for treasure trove. The yard was dug up the house examined, but still no trace of it could be gleaned. Experts in psychical studies visited the haunted house from all over that part of the state. They admitted that there was something strange about it, but further than that, they could not penetrate. In 1880, the sweet girl Mary left Nina and went to Spencer to live. Afterward, she removed to Colby. There she met Ferdinand Jules Thrun, who was also a Swede. He was an excellent mechanic and was employed in the sawmills of that region. It was not long before an attachment sprang up between the two, and in 1881 they were married. Soon after the marriage, Thrun bought a sawmill with what earnings he had accumulated and started in business for himself. The venture proved a losing one, and he not only lost the mill, but was left with a large accumulation of debts. For a time thereafter, the history of the couple is a blank. The following year, Mrs. Thrun went back to Nina and visited the people who were living in the old house, which had sheltered her so long. She seemed to take great interest in a part of the backyard, which was buried under a big woodpile. After remaining at Nina for some weeks and finding that the woodpile was not to be removed, she returned to her husband, only to go back to Nina two years later. This time, the backyard was covered by a huge lumber pile. Once more she left, but in 1886, she reappeared at Nina and found the backyard of the old haunted house was unencumbered. This time, her long and weary waiting... To secure the treasure she had found in the old house and buried in the backyard was rewarded. It is believed that she had located the miner's money while residing with the Andersons and had hidden it in the yard, with the view of carrying it away at some future time when she could do so with safety. This incident illustrates the cool calculation of the woman who was to figure conspicuously in a most remarkable insurance fraud. The treasure trove of Nina came at a good time for Thrun. That year, he bought another sawmill, paying $4,000 in cash for it. The mill was at once heavily insured, and, whether from accident or design, it burned the following year. Those who knew the family are inclined to believe that this mill burned without the aid of a match but it is immaterial from what source the fire started. As the tiger, which, having once tasted human blood, is ever after known as a man-eater, with an uncrunchable hunger for human flesh, so the taste of insurance with the Thruns seems to have aroused an unappeasable appetite for it. Soon after the first fire, all the creditors of Thrun from his first venture came down upon him, and made a desperate attempt to get hold of the insurance paid by the company. It was at this time that Mrs. Thrun told the story of the treasure trove at Nina and how she had obtained it. The story was wrung from her on the witness stand in her explanation of how she, a poor sweet girl, should have had so much money. Once started, she put on many embellishments about seeing mysterious lights, over the spot where she found the money. The jury believed her story, and the creditors failed to recover. Opportunities were plentiful for buying old sawmills in that part of Wisconsin. Most of the timber had been cut away, and every few miles an old abandoned mill was to be had at almost any price. What had been thriving towns while the trees were being cleared away were now almost deserted hamlets. As soon as the legal wrangles with the creditors over the first mill had ended, Thrun again invested. His sawmill was started up, working on the residue of the timber which had been left over in the first grand onslaught on the Wisconsin primaries. Local insurance agents, on the lookout for remunerative commissions, were as plentiful in those days in that part of the Badger State as in the rest of the country. Thrun had no difficulty in getting his sawmill insured for all it was worth. He made a pretense of operating it for some months, and one night it followed the first one. The experience the couple had with their first mill had been a good guide to them with the second. This time, when the adjusters came to find out what their companies had really insured, they quickly learned that the only thing to be done successfully was to pay the loss. This was their report to the companies, and the Thruns got their second taste of insurance money. The course of the couple for the next two or three years in buying sawmills, which were always insured and were equally certain to burn up, became the general talk of the wide stretch of the country northwest from Oshkosh. People differ as to the number of mills which were thus realized upon. Some say that there were at least five or six of them. At last, officers of insurance companies came to the conclusion that by playing Thrun's game, they were to be the losers. When that decision was reached, Thrun had bought an old useless mill at Romeo, a small town on the Wisconsin Central some 75 miles northwest of Oshkosh. During the time that the timber was being cut away, Romeo had been a prosperous place of 1,000 population. When the woodchoppers and sawmill hands left, not over 40 of 50 people remained. Thrun's new mill, without insurance, was practically worthless, and the case to less resourceful people would have seemed hopeless. Not so with Mrs. Thrun, however. It appears that she conceived the idea of burning the mill and then suing the Wisconsin Central for the loss on the ground that the fire had been caused by a spark from a passing locomotive. On Sunday night, the Romeo sawmill went up in smoke, as the others had done before. Suit was at once instituted against the Wisconsin Central for $20,000. The evidence against the railroad company was complete, as it always was in these cases. When the Wisconsin Central people examined the claim, they at once decided that it was fraudulent and that the mills had been set on fire for the express purpose of bringing the suit. But their belief would amount to little before a jury composed of Thron's associates in the county. A detective was sent to Romeo to uncover the fraud and to give the Wisconsin Central a basis for fighting the claim. The detective did not detect for he was taken into camp by the Thruns through the influence of a woman. Like Antony at Alexandria, the detective forgot all about his quest until he was awakened to the necessity of action by a sharp letter from the railroad company. To square himself with the powers above him, he told the officials that the woman with whom he had formed an acquaintance knew something of the case, but what it was he had been unable to discover. The woman was brought to Chicago, but the officials were unable to wrench the facts from her. It was at this juncture that T.G. Hansen, who was taken to Oshkosh on the charge of being a co-conspirator in the insurance fraud, came upon the scene. The railroad company wanted an intelligence Swede to commingle with the people at Romeo and uncover the mystery of the mill's burning. Hansen filled the bill and was at once employed. A few days later, a young fellow, evidently just over, walked into Romeo and wanted a job as woodchopper. He was as verdant a foreigner, to all appearances, as ever disembarked in that part of Wisconsin, and that is saying a good deal. Thrun gave him work, and he did good service among the pine stumps. The newcomer immediately was smitten with the charms of the woman who had beguiled the first detective. The two got along famously together, and the young Swede developed a longing for liquor when in the presence of his charmer. One night, a pint bottle of whiskey was two-thirds emptied by the pair, and, in the confidential state this produced, the woman gave away the secret which the railroad company had sought so long— Soon afterwards, the woodchopper was arrested on complaint to the Wisconsin Central for some offense. He induced Thrun to come to Chicago with him in order that he might escape being locked up. Once inside the offices of the Wisconsin Central, the woodchopper disguise was thrown off, and the long array of circumstances he had gathered was unfolded to the firebug. Then, as he did before the attorney for the mutual life insurance company, Thrun broke down. He not only acknowledged that he had no just claim against the Wisconsin Central, but signed a paper before leaving the office, relinquishing all demands for the loss of his mill. The pint bottle, with the whiskey which had been left by the woodchopper and the woman that night still in it, is now among the archives of the Claim Department of the Wisconsin Central in Chicago. The whiskey that is gone represents just $20,000. Hansen had done so well in his initial case that he was retained in the employ of the Wisconsin Central Claim Department and has since made an enviable record. He has enjoyed the full confidence of the officials, And nothing has occurred up to the recent developments in the big insurance fraud to indicate that he was not thoroughly honest. Even now, they profess confidence in his integrity and believe that he will come out of the ordeal unscathed. The failure of the attempt to filch money from the Wisconsin Central put a quietus on the plans of the Thruns for six months. The couple continued to live at Romeo in a ramshackle house, which was one of the few vestiges left of the town's more prosperous period. There was nothing more to be gained from fire insurance companies, but life insurance offered a most alluring inducement for swindling. All that was needed was to get the chief actor insured for a large amount, and he was to disappear. His widow was then to collect the value of the policies— divide the money among the co-conspirators, and then rejoin her husband in the mining regions of Idaho. The first plan which suggested itself to the conspirators was to have Thrun appear to fall overboard from one of the steamers trading between Green Bay and Chicago. This was accepted as the easiest way, and Thrun suddenly manifested a great interest in life insurance. Local life insurance agents were as eager for their commissions as the fire insurance men had been, and it was not long before Thrun had policies for $57,000, some of them in the most influential companies of the country. The risks were accepted by the various offices, with the exception of the equitable life of New York, whose inspector throughout the application. Because he could see no good reason why a man in Thrun's apparent circumstances should carry so heavy an insurance. One evening in the midsummer of 1892, a man with a heavy beard, a broad brimmed slouch hat, and an ill fitting suit of clothes, accompanied by a sharp looking young man, boarded one of the Goodrich steamers bound from Green Bay to Chicago. The same man with the same long beard disembarked from the steamer upon its arrival there. All night long, the bearded man had watched for a chance to fall overboard in such a way that a passenger with a smooth face, a derby hat, and a good suit of clothes would be left on deck. The old slouch hat was to have been dropped from the deck when the sharp young man sounded the cry of, "'Man overboard!' The watchmen on the steamer did their duty so well that the scheme was balked. Two more trips the same couple made between Green Bay and Chicago, but Thrun was not to die by being drowned. The boat watchman prevented that fate. It was then that the most horrible fate of being burned to death in his dwelling at Romeo was allotted to him by the conspirators. Mrs. Thrun, it appears, planned the details. The house was to burn down, Thrun was to disappear, and bones were to be found among the ashes. To carry out successfully this project required witnesses who could be depended upon to prove Thrun's death to the satisfaction of the insurance companies. The circle of the conspiracy was enlarged to take in two of Thrun's associates at Romeo. The legal side of the case had to be looked after, so that the claims on the policies might be valid, and also that, in case of failure, the conspirators would not suffer the penalty they deserved for the crime. As to the parties who entered into the conspiracy, the confession of Thren left no doubt. It was a compact organization— and arrangements were promptly completed for the event which was to blot out Ferdinand Jules Thrun as a legal entity in human existence. Thrun's house at Romeo took fire the night of October 28, 1892. As the flames were working their way toward the roof, Thrun rushed into the burning structure and was not seen again. I have some valuable papers in the house, he cried to the bystanders, as he disappeared, and I must get them. The next morning, when the people of Romeo began to poke around in the ashes of the burned building, they uncovered the bones of a human being. Thrun had been there the night before and was gone. He had been seen to go towards the house, and here were his bones. The coroner's jury was summoned, heard the statements of the people who had been at the fire and found a verdict that F.J. Thrun had been burned to death. The three witnesses who had testified that they had seen Thrun enter the house to rescue his valuables were N.L. Claudy, George Luchtman, and Charles Herbert. They were all asleep at the house at the time the fire broke out. Mrs. Thrun was visiting friends in an adjoining town when she received a dispatch to come home and that her husband was dead. I am aware, she calmly said to the representatives of the life companies, that some people say my husband is not dead. All I know is that the men who were with him that night say that he was burned in the house, and the coroner's jury has said that he was dead. All I ask is that you satisfy yourselves, gentlemen, as to his death. I am in no hurry. I can wait until you are ready to pay me. If my husband is alive, as you say he is, you must produce him. I would rather have him back than have the money. But if he is dead, I am entitled to what is due on the policies." All the cross-questioning of expert underwriters, who had been trained in the wiles of life insurance crooks, did not discompose Mrs. Thrun. She was cool and collected throughout an ordeal, which would have broken down any ordinary man or woman. Subjected to the same test afterward, her husband went to pieces almost at the outset. The poor man was burned to death, she said at once, although the dispatcher told nothing of there being a fire she had with her insurance policy on Thrun's life. Some women would have overdone the thing by a profusion of tears and sobs. Mrs. Thrun did nothing of the kind. She professed sorrow at her husband's death, put on her widow's weeds, and started in to collect the insurance. Soon afterwards, she removed to Fredonia, a small town about 30 miles from Milwaukee. Six weeks elapsed before serious doubts as to the fate of Thrun began to be aroused. When it was discovered that the bones found in the ashes were those of an old skeleton, the doubts ripened into certainty. The insurance companies prepared to fight the claims, and on December twenty-second, the case was turned over to the Pinkerton Detective Agency. All were united in the search for the man who had taken the star part in the fraud. In January 1893, Mrs. Thrun, still wearing her widow's weeds, appeared at the offices of the insurance people in Chicago and insisted upon payment of her claim. The policies were transferred to the hands of Hansen for collection, but in view of the well-founded doubts of the underwriters and the significant rumors afloat, he undertook to compromise. Some of the companies were induced to pay 10% of the face value of their policies in exchange for those contracts. Apparently realizing that the conspiracy had failed, Hansen suddenly changed front, perhaps in order to save himself, if guilty, He entered into a contract with the Aetna Life of Hartford to produce Thrun within 90 days. At the same time, Hansen insisted on the company paying 10% on its policies of $15,000, life and accident. This offer the Chicago manager energetically declined. Hansen made a pretense to be at work looking for Thrun but told the insurance company that he had not been able to locate him. At the end of the time specified in the contract, he appeared again at the office. This time he is said to have offered to produce Thrun in short order if immunity from prosecution were given the fugitive. Produce your man, General Agent Linus said to Hansen, and we will settle the question of prosecution afterward. Hansen left the office in a rage. In all, he secured about $4,000. The mutual life, which paid over 10% of his policy of $10,000 for a settlement, soon regretted the hasty step and joined eagerly in the search. Convinced that the easiest way to trace Thrun's whereabouts was to watch the correspondence between the fugitive and his wife, the detectives began to work at Fredonia. As was suspected... Thrun had gone into the wilds of northern Wisconsin at first and had drifted thence into the far west. From Montana, he was traced over nearly every state in the Mississippi Valley. He had come to Chicago and from there had drifted towards the south. When he anchored in New Orleans, he worked as a day laborer, and his entire surroundings indicated that he had but one object in life, and that was to escape arrest. Everywhere he felt that detectives were on his track. His only correspondent was his wife, and she addressed her letters to R.L. Harris. With that clue, a detective was at the post office window one day when he called for his mail. The letter received at the time was not from his wife, however. It was from the Pinkerton Agency in Chicago, and as it was handed to him, he was placed under arrest. William Beck, who had been employed by the mutual life of New York in the search, went to New Orleans and brought back the prisoner, who seemed to be relieved by his arrest. On his arrival in Chicago, he was taken to the office of Gordon E. Sherman in the Ashland Block, where he was subjected to a fire of cross questioning which soon brought out all the facts regarding the great fraud. Put to the test... Thrun broke down in Mr. Sherman's office and told of the steamboat scheme as leading up to the burning of his house. This confession was made March 17, 1893. The arrest of the conspirators followed, but they were not tried until December 8 of that year. A verdict of acquittal was returned in the cases of Hanson, Follett, and Claudie. The parties mainly implicated in the confession... Apparently, the jury believed them while they refused to believe Thrun. But as the charge of conspiracy failed, Thrun was allowed his discharge with the rest of the gang. End of Section 21